Welcome to the podcast. It's the worst territory in the world. Personalities, history, and other stories. We know you're craving for more knowledge. Let the champions get their glory. It's the worst territory in the world. Welcome, everybody. It's that time of the week, your favorite time of the week. Welcome to the worst territory in the world. I am Gabriel, or Gabe, Ben Miller, and was sitting along here with my co-host, Chris Goff. Chris, how are we doing? How are you feeling after having a wonderful week off from uh, this podcast and everything in between? Uh, Gabriel, Gabe, Ben, uh, it's been great. Uh, <laughs> no, we... I just got back from New Orleans, and somehow I did not go to that huge NWA show that saw Tyrus win. So I don't, I feel a little less fulfilled than I did when I left Kansas City. But I'm glad, glad, glad to be back. Love New Orleans, and uh, got to hang out with our buddy uh, Michael Strider and Jeremy Wyatt was there as well. So we had a good time. Wow. Yeah. I, I, man, the way you talk up New Orleans, it makes me want to go. Like, and I'm not a, I'm not a big like. You know, because that's a very uh, party city. I'm not like a Vegas guy, or I was, but I'm oh, not yeah. like a, a big New Orleans guy. But just to experience, I, my brother loves it there. He says that the culture there is amazing. Oh, yeah. The, the food's incredible. So the way you guys talk it up, I was like, man, I think I might need to put that on my bucket list. It would have been awesome to go to, uh, you know, the 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 Mid-South shows down there because I oh, love the gosh. town anyway. So when it was super hot wrestling town down there, I mean, could you imagine, uh, in you know, to have a Michael Hayes down there in a huge huge angle it would have been uh so much better just to have that involved but yeah as far as just going down there it's great i mean i it's uh i've been to a lot of towns because of traveling and wrestling and other jobs i've had and um i just keep coming back to new orleans like i i love going you know my wife likes the beach we like going to new york city we like going to the big cities and trying new things and i'm not against trying new things i've been to a million towns but i just keep coming back there and it's got like you said you First of all, you don't have to, you can walk around and everything. They, it's just the food, the music, the drinks. It's just a fun, uh, not so, uh, not so amateur hour, like, you know, 20, 30 years old, just getting, uh, drunk and hammered and throwing up like Vegas. Although there is that in, in New Orleans, but it goes all the way up to like, you know, 85 year olds doing it. So it feels sort of more <laughs> of a melting pot age wise. <laughs> I, I just pictured an 85 year old throwing up in an alleyway. Oh, and it, 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 it kind of made it kind of made me laugh. Speaking of, uh, you know, we got a lot to get to today. Uh, mm -hmm. Jam, jam, jam pack show. We got an amazing interview with Dr. Tom Pritchard coming up that you conducted, um, which I can't wait to hear. But speaking of Tyrus, I, I love, you know, as, as I've said before, I love talking to you about uh modern wrestling what's going on you know even in, like i said off the air we will uh vox each other about certain things that are going on sure. but that's one of the things i wanted to talk to you about was this hard times pay-per-view i mean obviously there's a bunch of things i want to talk to you about but what do you think of a decision like that to have a guy like tyrus win the nwa um championship and maybe give your overall thoughts on the current state of what is now known as the NWA, which is owned by Billy Corgan. You know, the, the history of me, just me personally with the NWA, not just as a fan, but just promoting wrestling shows. When I first started promoting here in 2009, 2010, the NWA was still a, 
you know, fledgling sort of overseer of independent territories, sort of. And so we used some of these titles. We had the uh, NWA Missouri, the Kansas titles, the Central States titles, the ta- some tag titles were involved at some points. Um, so, you know, that was when it was different people. Ed, Ed Schumann was involved at the very beginning, and then it turned into Dave Marquez, who, of course, we, we've seen around many times. Um, so uh, then it went to Bruce Tharp, which the whole NWA sort of saga in the last 30 years has always been very interesting. At Metro Pro, uh, coming from WWF and then coming and starting an Indie Pro, uh, Indie Federation here, it was interesting to uh hear some people talk about the nwa because when i first heard about it i was like this is a joke i mean you know this isn't anything that it used to be it's someone basically using the name and and the past to try to fulfill uh, um you know make it mean something now but um but that's the only way i met adam pierce uh dave marquez and adam pierce came to the nwa a very first show at metro pro here at memorial hall in kansas city kansas and i had never met uh i had seen adam pierce on a indie show uh, at Midwest Renegade Wrestling back when I was in college in Columbia, but I had never seen him uh, here and worked with him. But that started a great relationship. Adam Pierce, of course, was a he changed the NWA Championship in Kansas City during his Seven Levels of Hate with uh, Colt Cabana, and um, you know he was a great uh, figurehead or you know representative, I guess, of the NWA during that era. But then Bruce Tharp got it in a weird legal entanglement, and then now it goes to Billy Corgan. And I just, you know, I saw when I was in New Orleans, I saw everyone just burying this Tyrus winning the the championship. And I don't know how much of that is. Tyrus is a known um, Republican on (laughs) political talk shows, so on Fox, so I know that he's going to get buried probably because of that anyway. But I just think uh, people just think, you know, same old same old maybe with him he's been around for years and why is this a thing see trevor murdoch he has had a long history and obviously being a harley guy he worked he was a multi-time champion champion at metro pro wrestling um and we you know i always love uh trevor murdoch's look it was unique had the country boy thing going on look like dusty Rhodes or uh, any of those throwbacks from that, you know, even Dick murdoch obviously looks more like dick murdoch uh to me but um but you know he was I like the story that NWA had with him when when he beat Nick Aldis because it's like, okay, underdog, St. Louis, wrestling yep. at the chase. That all yep. made sense. That buildup made sense. I I do not follow the NWA that hard. Now, of course, our friend is Marty Bell, and she's involved in the NWA, and I, I hear from her a lot about the NWA. She was not at this card for some reason, but I, I don't know, uh, man. Dak, I, Dak Draper was on this card fighting for the national title. Dag Draper, another good friend of ours, who's a yes. great wrestler. But, uh, you know, I, I just think that, uh, I, I don't know, I, it was a little bit of a, uh, as we call the wrestling business, a fart in church. You know, it wasn't really, didn't go over well. Uh, and it, um, I, I just think that probably because Billy just doesn't have a lot of people at his disposal that will have any kind of name value that he can keep on the top of the card. Now, I wasn't a huge Nick Aldis fan, were you? No. No. I mean, like he's not exact. He looks the part, you know. He he, he did does. the old school thing. He he has great look, great body. Uh, dressed in three piece suits all the time. Look like a you know champion back in the Ric Flair esque type champion. But as far as being a Nick Aldis fan, haven't really that hasn't really done anything for me. Uh, 
Trevor Murdoch, I have personal ties with, and I like Trevor. And I think he's more of a, uh, he obviously a blue collar guy that uh, sort of fun to see him get a run with it here. But, you know, I don't, there's not like, I know Matt Cardona was on the, in the match too. I, I don't really know who the, who's out there, Gabe. And I think this is the problem with indie wrestling in general. And it was when I was, when I was promoting and it probably started when you were started promoting too. It's like, Who's out there that has big name recognition that hasn't been scooped up by, you know, the big tour, you know, two and a half of the impact wrestling. There's just not a lot out there. <laughs> oh, impact wrestling. It's yeah. Still I, there. I, I, I mean, God bless him for hanging on this long. I, I just, that it wasn't so much that Tyrus won that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. It was mm -hmm. the, it was the response. And then Billy Corgan dub doubling down and saying, if you don't like this type of thing, don't watch, which as, <laughs> as a businessman is kind of a strange attitude to have. Now I can see him like, you know, obviously wanting to stand by his champion. Hey, we made the right decision, blah, blah, blah. But to si to simply almost alienate some of your audience by saying, if you don't like that decision, don't watch. Well, as a casual wrestling fan, if I didn't like that decision, I'd, throw up my middle finger and be like, fine, I'm not watching because you just told me not to, you know? Yeah. So it, it was kind of an, it was more of the, excuse me, for me, the doubling down of, of that decision. That was, that was a little bit of a head scratcher for me, but yeah, um, Dak, you know, uh, wrestled on the, on that card. Um, by the way, Dak phenomenal. I mean, he's in the best shape of his life. And oh, I will it looks great. say, yeah. not because Michael Strider is a dear friend of ours, but he, there is a promo coming out that um, I had the good fortune of, of uh, I've kind of switched my roles at uh, Central States Wrestling, and Dak cut two of the best promos that I have seen him do in a very very long time, and it shows the evolution of Dak Draper. And I'm this is not the Dak Draper suck up hour, but I I I have seen him grow, and it is further evidence of why. Why isn't this guy signed somewhere? And I guess we could do a whole episode on that. But man, the, the promos this guy laid down at CSW a couple weekends ago were some of the best I've seen in, in quite a long time. So kudos to Dak Draper. And yeah, Marty is working there. I, I'm not a fan, so I can't speak on it on NWA more than what we've just talked about. But I, I did... I, I wanted to get your opinion of the scuttlebutt ab about Tyrus winning the title. And I'm sure part of the backlash is the fact that he's conservative. And he said sure. a lot of interesting things that may rub people the wrong way. So. Sure. I mean, look, he look, and, and if you want him to run as a heel, that would be fine. You know, as if that's what you want to go with. Although, although even in, in today's wrestling world, it doesn't seem like even that would work in a positive fashion. Even if no. you were trying to like throw a heel out there as like a over the top, hardcore right wing Republican. But, you know, I, like, like you said, uh, Dag Draper, one of my favorite guys in wrestling. Yes, he should be signed. He's a young, like, what is he just now 30? He's been in the business. It seems like a decade or more. So right. uh, he should be signed at some point that's he's got the look he's oh. i don't know it'll happen one day i'm sure he was signed to nxt a long time ago but you know they've let go of guys that have come back and become big stars so it's fine but i think going back to uh just billy corgan and what he said to the fans like you said i think that um he's probably 
He's had a hard road. I don't have sympathy for a multimillionaire rock star, but I will say that, man, the NWA, I thought when they first started it back with NWA power and everything came right. back and they were putting it on pre-pandemic, the pandemic screwed up a lot of things, but sure. but it did screw up NWA a lot. And uh, then they had the, you know, I used to work with David Lagana at WWE and then he was basically the right-hand man for NWA and Billy Corgan and he was helping write a lot of it and produce a lot of it and doing a lot of those videos with Nick all this in the title and tim storm and all those little videos that came out that were sort of cool uh david lagana had to do with that but then he got involved in well, i i have no idea what's what's going to happen with it but he got involved in like a little scuffle with uh, the me too movement of some sort i don't really understand what happened there but david lagana gone with the company so then it sort of went in hibernation for a little bit came back and now you know at a lower level than it was before and this is even trying to build from the level we we're talking about you know 10 years ago from you know what what do the three letters nwa really mean now and a lot of people say it's still dead and a lot of people still want it to mean something you know it does mean more than just insert random uh wrestling company that starts tomorrow with three letters but um you know i don't know i just i think he has a, he had a hard hard climb anyway when he started off and buying it from bruce tharp and all that but He's gone through a pandemic and a couple of uh, leadership changes there. So I think it's tough. And I just don't think there's a lot of talent out there. Uh, as much as people like to say that this is a golden <laughs> a golden era of wrestling, which I laugh at because it's not. But if you uh, if you think it is, uh, show me all the people on the indies that should be the champion at NWA that would actually mean something. Because if you want to complain about Tyrus, which I'm not saying you're wrong to complain about, I need to know uh, 10 other guys that you think would be right. better. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of indie names you can throw out there, but let's let's talk about Cachet because unless they've had a little bit of a, a run somewhere higher than NWA, it's really hard for people to care or get any recognition. Absolutely. Speaking of Cachet, that brings us to the – I have two more things that I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, there's a million things I actually want to talk to you about. But we're just going to go with two more stories. And the Cachet is this, is Jeff Jarrett is back – Lord. again with a major company um in aew uh, uh -huh. making his debut just a few short weeks ago not only as a talent but he's also going to be overseeing um i think uh business development for aew after just leaving his job in uh wwe if there is a guy that will pop up anywhere anytime given anything now i'll be honest with you i hated jeff jarrett up until literally six months ago um and the reason why i started liking jeff jarrett is because of his podcast actually which is um i i found him to be kind of very earnest down to earth mm -hmm. um, especially now that he's not drinking which is something i i obviously relate to and all that kind of stuff and i sure. really enjoy his stories and, and uh, because he's been there done it all with every major promotion love him or hate him i always found him to be nyquil on every segment that he was on <laughs> So he shows up in AEW and I'm like, man, this guy is having one hell of a year. So I, I wanted to kind of get your opinion about, first of all, Jeff Jarrett, how if you ever had any encounters, um, obviously working with him or writing a story for him in WWF and what. Where is where do you think Jarrett's place in wrestling is? Is it this chameleon that kind of is always kind of advantageous who just kind of shows up, collects a check and goes home? Or does he really love the business that much? Because in my opinion, honestly, he saved Ric Flair's last match, which I could do a whole episode about <laughs> that abomination of a match. 
Um, I don't care anyone anyone says that was an abomination of a match. Sure. And um, but he looked phenomenal. And so what what do you think about Jeff Jarrett? You know, when I started in 1997, obviously Jarrett was in and out of there. Uh, right. He he left, came back, uh, had that promo segment with Stone Cold Steve Austin that you look back and you're like, oh, that's you know, Stone Cold got really ticked about that, and that sort of buried him more. Stone Cold had problems, obviously, with the Jarrett's anyway with his time in Memphis, not getting paid right and just sort of getting pushed down. So he he wasn't going to return any kind of favor in WWF, but he did come back. And and I always liked Jeff Jarrett in the role of a mid-card heel, okay? I just – I think Jeff Jarrett jumped the shark as far as a, a, a top guy when they tried to push him as a top guy, okay? When they tried to put him in that – main event level, especially, obviously, uh, everyone thinks he's a Vince Russo boy. He's done a good job on his podcast trying to act like that. He has no idea why people feel that way because he's <laughs> friends with Vince Russo but not, like, pushed by him. I don't really – I look, man, I I don't know any – I know as much as the next guy on some of this stuff, but I do think it is – Everyone likes to rip on Vince for rewriting history, but these wrestlers on their podcasts all rewrite history too. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know – I really like Kevin Nash and, and for example, like he will talk like he did absolutely nothing wrong as he'll act like he barely was. If he even was a booker at, at WCW, but he acted like he didn't do anything to ever cause any heat at all. He was just trying to be a great guy. And, you know, most people will say that's not completely true. And then Jeff Jarrett, uh, he's a guy that I understand that he, um, if you're going to get a top spot given to you by the head guy, Vince Russo, why would you not take it? Totally understand. Take it. Go with it. Absolutely. But, um, but he ended up uh, getting pushed really high as a world champ there, and I don't think that a lot of people saw him that level, so that sort of hurt him after that. And then when he gets his own promotion, so I only, I guess my point of – my only – crossing paths with him to the most part was when he was came back and he was uh uh in that run and he finally uh had the good housekeeping match with china and then he left and we were oh my oh my gosh he's going to wcw and he ended up holding him up for money having the final match and then and then leaving and then of course after wcw went out and they had a couple years there he ended up starting uh with his dad uh, you know nwa tna at the time and um so I never had a lot of like direct dealings with him. I just, as a fan, like you said, a lot of people had the same thought. He wasn't a uh, big star. He's boring, whatever. I, I just like, I like the, the over the top country. I did. I like Tennessee Lee. I liked all that crap because it was cheesy fun to me. It was just when they like postured him in a top role that I just couldn't buy. And you're right. He looked, he was the best guy. I mean, Jay Lee's I like too, but he was the well, best yeah. guy in that, in that Ric Flair match. Uh, I think everybody was shocked that he was in such good shape at his age at this point. And I look, I don't think he left his job at WWE. If you're, I, th I think he was told to leave. Oh, uh, sure. I don't, no, that's I don't what know. I meant. I'm sorry. I meant he was fired. <laughs> yeah, it's what it, they start. You never know. You know, I resigned myself, Gabe. So I don't you don't know if I left or quit either, but or got fired. I got fired. But uh, <laughs> but I, I resigned technically. But anyway, um, when he uh, when he left, um, you know, I don't he has his podcast. I don't think he needs money. It doesn't seem like he's paid off his house. He talks about all that stuff. But I just feel um, I, I don't know. I I think it's okay. I think this goes back to what we we're just talking about. I think there's a a lack of guys that know what the hell they're doing that are really good hands in the ring that have had enough experience to help out companies that are from the ages of like 30 to 40. <laughs> so now you have uh, guys like him, they're in his mid fifties that still can help a company out in some way in the ring, behind the scenes, whatever. He has a lot of 
behind the scenes work. You know, it sort of goes uh, and me and you might have talked about this too. It goes back to okay, if you're Vince McMahon or Triple H now, or if you're Tony Khan, you know, who do you want to who who should be your right hand man? You know, because all I hear about is everyone complaining about Bruce Pritchard, Terry Taylor, same old, same old crap, like blah, blah, blah. You're absolutely right. But again, it's like a guy and on Sports Talk here says, if not him, then who, right? right? Who is going to take that spot? Who is out there that is not a biased person? You know, because uh, I, I, AEW, I've heard like, even though I like Chris Christopher Daniels, he's friends with a lot of people. And it's hard. You can't be friends with the talent when you're supposed to be talent relations or someone delivering bad news. So, you know, Bruce, to his credit, he is... Uh, doesn't really care if people hate him and that's not a uh that's not a trait that a lot of people have so um who is so out you, there so, so you think he'll be helpful to the aew so. process most likely because of that experience i think and he, he brings has that name value recognition yeah i well just let's say he goes purely behind the scenes after he has a couple things here or whatever i think like he can help when the, from the standpoint of I don't think he was a businessman before promoter, all that stuff. He, he, whether you agree with what he does or not, he has the mindset of, I want this company to be the best it can be. So I'm not going to, you know, promote my buddies, the young bucks and Kenny Omega over uh, other bigger drawing people, because, um, you know, that's not what best for business. And that, that is sadly needed in AEW, I feel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Transitioning, you already mentioned this, gentlemen, but the hot, hot issue that I've heard over the last few days is a one Stone Cold Steve Austin apparently is is open to the idea of another go-around. Now, mm -hmm. um, he uh, headlined night one, I believe, of WrestleMania last year against Kevin Owens. It was what it was. It, it, it wasn't the abomination that the Ric Flair match was. But it was different. It was presented different. It had a different feel to it. Um, everything like that. Are I, I? I'm having a hard time framing. Are we? Are we? A okay. Are you okay with guys like Stone Cold Steve Austin having yet another match? So that. So this is kind of a a, a multiple pronged question. Would you? Are you okay with Stone Cold having another match? A. B. Yes. Who would it be against if you were booking it? And C, are, are, are the WWE digging into that well because they need guys like that? Or is this more of a, do you think, a stone-cold call like where he's like, I had a, a really good time and I made a ton of money. Let's do it again. You know, WrestleMania season when I was working at WWE was uh, fun because that was the time that outside of Macho Man Randy Savage, Vince McMahon was open to anyone coming back and doing stuff. <laughs> and it was a uh, macho man was always off the table. This is, and let's go back 20, 25 years Why? when I was there. Uh, well, you know, there's plenty of rumors, but you don't know, no, really. Um, I don't think it's Stephanie. I think it's more has to do with stealing sponsorship money, like Slim Jim and other yeah, things like that. But that I think that hurts Vince more than anything with his daughter. Anyway. Um, I think, uh, I think the problem, you know, I think the thing is, though, now, like, so 25 years ago, it was like, hey, who's on, who who would you like to see? Could We could bring back Roddy Piper. We could bring back Hogan. We, You know, and it was like fun. Um, you know, of, of course, with all the hours of programming and everything that's happened and all the, the lack of building new stars or whatever you want to call it, just I think it's more the lack of territory system that allows you to build stars over 15 years so they can be huge stars in WWE when they're 30, 35 years old. Now you're you're saddled with a you know the last fifteen to twenty years of people that um, 
the guys are getting too old to work <laughs> that were the from the 80s and now you're go, you've moved on to now the guys from the 90s attitude era that can still go that you know there's plenty of those guys mr ass is another one that said billy gunn has been like he's in the <laughs> he's more popular now than he might have been uh well not uh, he's not as no. popular as dx but no. he's popular he's more popular now than many people in wrestling which is Correct. weird uh and jeff jarrett could be that way now too but stone cold to me uh I just think it's – I would guess it's just uh, fun for him to do. He's open to it. He's in phenomenal shape now, they say. Um, and, you know, I I think he adds a layer to a WrestleMania weekend that uh, it doesn't matter what he does. He can come out and throw beers at somebody. It's going to be uh, a, a moment to remember. And you need those moments. It's always been a big part of the WrestleManias that I enjoyed. You, you know, like – uh, I always love 17 is I love three forever, but 17 was my favorite because I was there. And also, uh, I just think you could argue it was the best one ever. And yeah, uh, the gimmick, it was the one and only gimmick battle royal set up by Howard Finkel that I will never be redone if the cast of characters that were in that. Uh, but it, just going back to, uh, you know, that and Ford, it's fun to have the Hogan's, the, the, you know, Shawn Michaels came back in a more permanent role, but these people, you know, Bret Hart, even though Bret Hart came back and faced Vince and that was pretty, pretty brutal, not a, not a match really. It was a fight of some sort with the entire family out there, but I don't care. It was cool to see Bret Hart come right. back. Right. I'm of that right. ilk. There's a lot of people who think right. this is garbage. That's fine. You don't have to like it. Uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin is arguably the, you know, top top three, top five biggest names ever in wrestling in the modern era. I'm not taking away anything from, you know, the Toloses and the Londoses or whoever. But uh I'm but you know, I'm not I don't want to take away from the guy from Hackenschmidt, but I do want to um I do think I think I'm I think it's cool. Like I don't know who to put him with, uh Gabe, because I I, I thought it was you want to say, well, have him bring in and put over one of the young guys, but that's not what you want to see no, when you see Stoko no. come back. No. Yeah. You want to see him, you want to see him look strong and good at the end. So even if you put somebody over, you have to then uh turn it around in the aftermath to let him beat him up and so he can go out strong. That's just how it works at a big moment like that. And then, you know, the of course the rumor mill rumor mill is swirling that could it be CM Punk now that He's most likely, you know, the rumor again is that he'll be bought out of his AEW contract, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. So there's a lot of interesting scenarios. Me personally, I I don't think any match that Stone Cold could do right now in that environment is going to sully his legacy because yeah. at, a at a certain point, Stone Cold became less about a great match and was just Stone Cold. Spectacle. You know? Yeah, it was a spectacle even when he was healthy. You know what I mean? There, yeah. He wasn't having five-star classics towards the end of his career. I mean, he had a lot of limitations. His knees were completely shot. His neck was shot. Like, I mean, this guy was going out there and basically having a glorified brawl and then a stunner, you know? So I, I'm I'm into it, but it, it's just interesting to picture, yeah, like you said, like, who, who is he going to go against? You know, could it be as something as nuts and mind-blowing as CM Punk I believe that there's a possibility that he'll go back. Um, I think there's a lot of talk that needs to happen and a lot of money needs to change hands before something like that happens. But I, I think that would be an interesting matchup because they were kind of pushing towards that a couple of years ago. Um, but it also kind of brings up the question. We don't have to talk about it now because we got this great interview to get to with uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard that we're going to go to in just a second. But it also brings up, you know, 
<laughs> the, uh, excuse me, Paige, the former Soraya is coming back from all these guys are coming back from these like quote unquote career ending injuries. So it's interesting to see those doors of possibility starting to shift, you know, where these guys that we never thought we'd see compete again are getting into shape and getting that medical clearance in order uh, to compete again. So it's going to be a very, very, very interesting wrestling you know what's what's interesting uh, going to the injury stuff like Kurt Angle, right? This is a guy that came into wrestling and had issues with his neck. He had issues the entire time. Then he gets hurt with Brock at 19. Then he ends up having like basically people are saying if he has one bad bump, he's paralyzed. I mean, we right. heard all we heard all right. this stuff. And granted, like there's doctors. Uh, opinions left and right are different but uh my friend seth and i we were just scared the entire time he wrestled we were like this could be the last match that he and so these guys can uh you know these neck injuries edge edge came back christian yeah, I, like all right. these guys are coming back years later uh you know sean michaels had the back injury comes back and maybe cements his legacy as one of the greatest if not the greatest in ring worker of all time and the uh and at least wwf level uh but you know, Stone Cold, I mean, man, who knows if he's going to come back for a full match, though, Gabe. I mean, he could come back and you could have a cool thing where it's like, okay, you have um, you have Roman Reigns and, and the Bloodline and they have a match and then Rock comes out and then, oh, here comes Stone Cold to help, like, and Stone Cold and Rock have a face-off because he helps, uh, you know, one side or the other. I, I don't know. It could be... Right. It could be just something like that. And that's and that's all I need at WrestleMania as a fan of Stone Cold Steve Austin. I just need him to come here. It doesn't I know this goes against the uh, old school philosophy, which I hate anyway. I'm not saying you shouldn't put over guys at the end, but you you turn a quarter at some point where I don't need to see them lose. I, I don't need to see him go out there and put over a mid card to low upper tier guy just to uh, make it feel like that he's doing the job for somebody. That's not what I want to see. And, uh, you know, I just want to see him standing strong at the end, but you're right. A lot of people have come back from these career ending injuries. And that is uh, something that um, is becoming more prom uh, prominent now. But I think what's weird is I I'm really curious how in 20 years from now, how all these guys that are bumping so hard now are going to be, because we're seeing the effects of people like Stone Cold, who granted he had when he got hurt with Owen Hart at SummerSlam uh, 98. That was, uh, you know, he went into his biggest run with a neck problem <laughs> worse than ever. Uh, almost didn't, couldn't walk. But I don't know. I well, I, That generation is definitely bouncing back better than others. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think you're going to see that kind of bounce back because... Everybody is a YouTube and Twitter star or Twitch or whatever. <laughs> sure. So everybody's going to be transferring to that. Then it seems like nobody has the heart to continue to do this into their 60s like um, the previous generation. <laughs> Speaking of the previous generation, Goff, let's talk about the interview that you conducted with one Dr. Tom Pritchard. And before you, you set this up, may I tell you how disgusted I used to be by Dr. Tom's hair flipping and gesticulations <laughs> when I was a young man, I'd be like, God, this guy is so greasy, but I did. I was always a fan of the heavenly bodies. I thought they were a phenomenal tag team. So they were, and they had some great matches great. with, uh, man, what were they? The Steiners. They had some good matches back in the day. And they were, they were bringing them in from smoky mountain wrestling. Yep. I mean, that was smoke going back and watching Smoky Mountain now. I appreciate it more. I didn't live in the area that that I could watch that, of course, being here in Kansas City. But I um 
You know, Dr. Tom Pritchard is one of the first guys I met when I started interning at WWF. He was training guys in the uh, in the, in the TV studio, sort of like I call it the barn. It was basically like a huge open warehouse. And it was just funny because you think about it now at the Performance Center and everything. But 25 years ago, what they were doing is they put they just had this you know, probably 1980s WWF ring set up in the warehouse and all around it's like the mail room. And like, there's just, you know, pallets of other garbage sitting around everywhere. But there I look out there and Dr. Tom, the first summer I was out there was Darren Drozdoff was out there all the time and giant Silva and Sean Stasiak came the next year. But between that, they'd have these things called Funkin' dojos and stuff where uh, the funks would come in and they would bring in I mean, that's where Sean Morley, a.k.a. Val Venus, Edge, Christian, uh, Hurricane, like there were so many young guys there. And then, of course, you've heard Dr. Tom has been the they call him the trainer, trainer of stars with uh, Mark Henry, The Rock. He trained with Vince to get him ready for his matches with Stone Cold when he first got in the ring in his mid 50s. Uh, Dr. Tom has quite a history there. And I wanted to talk to him about his thoughts on central states because this is called the worst territory in the world. <laughs> Talking about Kansas City, I wanted to see what he, he never wrestled in Kansas City, but he had a history here, of course, coming here with WWF. He worked with all the people from the territory days because he is a territory guy. Harley, Bulldog Bob Brown. We talk about that. Rufus R. Jones. Uh, his reasons why he thinks that uh, Kansas City was looked at the way it was by people like Ric Flair. And, uh, of course, I also go into uh, the Owen Hart situation, his tragic death uh, in May of 1999 here at Kemper Arena and talking about what, you know, he was there that night, as as was I. So it's always interesting. I know it's a horrible memory in, in wrestling history but i think it's fun to remember the the uh the the man owen hart because he was known as such a uh you know prankster and everyone liked him and that's it's always sad when you know some some of the worst people in the world will live to 100 years old and some of the best people uh leave way too soon and he was one of those guys so i wanted to talk to tom about kansas city owen hart and everybody in between that came through here and who better to talk to than the trainer of champs and the guy that should still be the trainer at WWF. Maybe one day he will be, but uh, WWE, I still call it WWF, uh, WWE, um, Tom Pritchard. And let's get to the interview with Dr. Tom Pritchard right now. It's the worst territory. Joined now by Dr. Tom Pritchard, doctor of desire. And Tom, I have known you for 25 years now. I, I met you when I was straight out of college up in Stanford, Connecticut, when you were you were training uh, in the warehouse at the TV studio. And people still don't believe that that is uh, how it works back in the day, uh, based on everything that's going on now. But the, I love that because I got to have so much time with you. And at the time, it was draws. And I mean, there's just a, I mean, obviously a ton of people going through at that point. Yeah, it was a great time. It was, it was a lot of fun back then, and uh, things were just starting and developmental. And uh, obviously, being out of college, you were still half drunk. Yeah, I was. I was, and I, that's yeah. why I came to work uh, really happy every day. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had to wonder why. Then we kind of investigated and found that bottle of old, uh, <laughs> old spice on your desk, and we said, he's drinking this? That's all yeah. I had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, the I got to <clears> – when I was up there, I met you for the first time. I knew that you had been a uh, huge territory guy as a worker, and then you were up there at the uh, the corporate office at the time. But 
This show, Tom, is called The Worst Territory in the World because that is what uh, your former boss, Jim Cornette, and Ric Flair, and many others say about the Central States area. Now, they keep sort of St. Louis out of that discussion. It's usually just Kansas City, Iowa, Nebraska, you know, other parts of Missouri. They say it was the worst, and, I mean, Cornette can't say enough negative things about it. Why is that? I, I think uh, Kansas City gets its bad rep. And first of all, let me just preface by saying I never worked the territory. You're right. I, I've never had the opportunity. I never really had the desire, but I would have gone anywhere and, and enjoyed it, no doubt. I think Kansas City gets a bad rap because it was so close to St. Louis, and Sam Munchnick ran things the way he ran things. Mm -hmm. Then you had guys like Pat O'Connor, Bob Geigel, and Harley Race running the office in Kansas City the way they would run things. And I think, um, no disrespect to any of those guys, uh, they knew the business and they understood it. But I think sometimes in that in the area you, area you find yourself in, if it's not um, economically thriving, or you have uh, a lackluster product, uh, it's 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 not it doesn't matter. Who you bring here and what you do with it, um, there's there's going to be that overlying uh, Bulldog Brown, um, a, a Rufus R. Jones, sure. and guys like that who weren't necessarily the most dynamic personalities in the world, although Rufus did have, have some personality. It just wasn't going to work. And uh, Sam Mushnick being so close, uh, I think, made a made the contrast even stronger by the way he did business and uh i just don't think harley and pat and uh geigel uh were the guys to um uh, to run a business like that successfully for for various reasons and uh uh for whatever reason is i think a lot of they they like to take the money and and not distribute it as much as they should, I guess. Do you think and that's they, just speculation? I mean, yeah, yeah. So, do you think they? You think they pocket? Well, first of all, Bob Geigel. I got to meet him when he was like, you know, in his early, late seventies, early eighties. That's the first time I. Well, I met him when I was a child because he was still being a security guard at a at a racetrack here in town called the Woodlands, and him and all the former wrestlers were security there, and it was a huge deal. And everybody, they were obviously local legends here in Kansas City. But Geigel lived in a very modest house. He wasn't a guy that's your typical like, oh, he's just. Uh, a carny promoter that saved all his, you know, he's living in a mansion by a lake somewhere. This guy, uh, I mean, he probably lived in the same house for 60 years, so I don't think he was pocketing it or anything. I just, maybe it just wasn't there. Is that what, is that what you No, well, well that, I, I guess that that's a huge part of it. But at one time, you had uh, Harley Race and, and, and Pat O'Connor and all those guys. Sure. Uh, putting their heads together. So why why couldn't they draw money? Was it? Uh, th that's that's the question I would ask is why and, and what was uh, holding them back? Well, I think the key to any territory is getting talent to come. And why would anybody want to live in Kansas City? Look, I, I ask myself <laughs> that all the time. Yeah. I mean, what's what's the draw? St. Louis, I, I, I certainly understand. What, STDs when you're going to or play, what? Why, why, St. Huh? Louis, why is St. Louis big? They have the most STDs in America? Like, what's big about could, that town? Could be. 
Okay. Could be. Okay. I mean, they have the arc. They have, it seems like a bigger city. We're a little more progressive. Okay. Kansas City, even just in the sound of it, sounds a little bit uh, uh, from the Wayback Machine, if you will. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I really don't know why it would be considered the worst territory, except obviously there was something they weren't doing to draw people to the matches. And that, that was uh, certainly a... Uh, unappealing to a lot of people. Well, what what territory did you work that would be most similar to Kansas City? Was Alabama like that at all? Like, what, what was similar? Well, in the end it was, but I don't know. Alabama was run by the Fullers, who had a totally different personality and sure. and, and character traits than Harley or Pat or uh, Geigel. Uh, and, and I'm sure that any, any of the young guys like Marty... Jeanette or Shawn Michaels, who came in, they they were going to have fun wherever they went. <laughs> but I I just I don't know if it was um, the the booking or the talent or or a combination. Well, it's always a combination, I guess. Uh, that that was the downfall of Kansas City, and I just think yeah. it was it was so close to St. Louis, where Sam Mustick. Um, Revered, everybody loves him. I mean, they talk nothing yeah. but great about him. Yeah, he paid well, and he and he booked for the most part great matches, and uh, had the talent coming in for him. And he was uh, the NWA president at the time. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. I honest to good I, goodness, I don't know Harley. I didn't. I knew Harley okay, but I didn't know him well enough to say. Uh, how he would run a booking office or run a wrestling office. That might, when you were younger, that might be a little intimidating to ask him that anyway. Well, when I was, I, Les Thatcher and I went and stayed with Harley when he was in Eldon. Okay. Uh, and he didn't have a mansion on the lake, but he had a modest house on the lake as well. And went out and I got to ask Harley a lot of, a lot of things about, you know, when I, when I did know about him growing up in, in the business and, uh, for whatever reason, uh, they, they, they all had experience and they all were top guys, you know, Geigel, Pat O'Connor and Harley. But when it comes down to running a business, I don't know that they were, um, that well in tune with it. Yeah. Well, we, I know you're a wrestling historian. Uh, I remember when I did the Casey on the Mat documentary, I sent you uh, a, a shot of that, and you said uh, you're a belt guy, too. You like that old Orville Brown NWA belt. Um, do, you, do that Bob Geigel, though, going back to him, he is uh, historically, obviously, if you're not from Kansas City, you've seen him as like the figurehead of the NWA for a while. Um, he seemed like an incredibly nice uh, not a complex guy to me. Seemed like a very straight shooter, simple guy, and I, I guess that's why Ric Flair always, you know, buried him and said that he wore shower shoes. And he was, you know, I just think I think but he just had his jeans, a button-up shirt, and I guess shower shoes in Ric Flair's mind all the time. And I think that really perturbed people that were trying to be a little bit flashier. Well, it could it could have mirrored how he he ran business and and most of the guys who were successful uh showed success in in how they what they wore and how they presented themselves and that could be another reason why perception wise um people thought ah this guy doesn't have it all together i don't know 
Yeah, I, I get it. Like, look, people today, it's, everyone's so casual today, he'd fit in just fine now. But back in the day, you probably had Mushnick and the guys wearing three-piece suit every show. I mean, it's, it's obviously going to be different. Yeah, it was a different culture, different era, and uh, wrestling was presented differently in St. Louis. So, and and here's the other thing, you know, when I when I heard about Rufus R. Jones mm -hmm. being the top guy in Kansas City, <laughs> I saw Rufus when he first started uh, Buster Lloyd. Okay, and you know, I I thought it was Buster Lloyd when I saw a picture of him, and I said, Ah, oh, well, wait a minute. Maybe not, but he went to, when I saw Buster Lloyd, uh, I saw him first in Houston in probably about 1970. And then he went to Amarillo and became Rufus R. Jones. Uh, I think Dory Funk Sr. gave him that name. But there wasn't a lot of finesse or uh, he, he, there was a difference between a Johnny Valentine and a Rufus R. Jones. And I think there was a difference, a huge difference between uh, a Harley race and a Rufus R. Jones. And they're putting Rufus in against Harley and they're putting Rufus in against the world champion and giving him that, that top spot. And I think even back then people could see, ah, oh, wait a minute, this, this isn't, <laughs> there's a difference here. Yeah. And so there, there's, yeah, a different, different culture. And I think when you see the promoter coming in wearing flip flops and jeans, it does, it does give you an imprint in your mind and say, well, what is this guy thinking? He doesn't care about the perception of wrestling or these guys are supposed to be special and not look like us. And we're supposed to be different than, than the fans in the seats. And mm -hmm. Bob didn't look at it like that, even though Paul Bosch, understood his fans and greeted his fans in Houston. Paul was a imposing figure and he always wore a suit or always wore a tie when uh, he was at the matches and in his office, he, he wore, uh, you know, at, at least, uh, dress pants and dress shoes and a, and a, and a button down shirt. You know, he looked, looked somewhat professional. And I think that carries, over to every aspect of it. Sure. Well, you brought up Rufus. I mean, when you're when you're working uh, where you were working when you were younger, and you see uh, Kansas City's headline, like you've already mentioned, a couple of the guys that were just stalwarts here. You had Rufus R. Jones, Bulldog Bob Brown. Uh, I mean. <laughs> You know, people in Kansas City love those guys because they grew up watching them, obviously. But everyone else will sit there and say, how is Bulldog Bob Brown a top guy anywhere? Because, you know, what was he? Five, five foot nothing, and, you know, he, he, was, he was as big as he – yeah, I guess when, when Geigel tells a story, when he, when he found him, he was uh, 3'10". And he got down right. to, like, I think, like, 260 or something like that. But uh, did you look at Kansas City and be like, uh, Bulldog Bob Brown could not be a main eventer anywhere else? No, no, it's not that. Uh, I, I think no, nobody knows what's going to get over. Daniel Bryan, I mean, having 70,000 people shouting yes, yes, yes sure. at WrestleMania, he's, he's not a tall guy, wasn't a big guy. There was that charisma. There was that intangible it factor. Uh, I don't think it uh, – during that time, though, I think there were other elements um, in place, and – it's not that he couldn't be a top guy anywhere else or Kansas City. I think you have to have great booking and ideas to go along with that. And that's what I was getting at. I'm sure Pat O'Connor and, and Bob Geigel and Harley Race putting their heads together would come up with some pretty good ideas. But 
for whatever reason, the population, yes, they grew up watching the guys and, and loved them and revered them around that area. I still would think if they were that loved and that revered, then you would have to go see them on whatever night they were wrestling. And obviously that wasn't happening in the later years. In a lot of places, it wasn't happening. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know what the secret was. Or, yeah. Yeah. I just didn't the know. If you th- so you think it's mainly just the way they put stuff together, not as much the talent, that, which, is a, which is a lot of people's thoughts on any wrestling promotion. Sure. Yeah, but, but talent does have a huge part in it. And, and I think uh, coming in there, that's where they were sending young guys at the time to yeah. learn, kind of like Portland and places like that. It became uh, a learning ground and a place for young guys to go get ring time and work out their, their – uh, uh, faults and get better and try to try something new every time they went out in the ring. Plus, you had veterans like the Goggles, uh, or the Bulldog Browns going out there, and and I don't know if how helpful they were in the ring, but that was the idea when you'd send a young guy sure. to a different territory to get get experience, get some reps in. I mean, Bob Brown tagged with Marty. I mean, but these they were they, they did a lot of that. I mean, I, I talked with Marty a while back, and he, he really loved Kansas City. He spent a lot of time here, more than Sean. And he, he got he got over really big here. And he, he loved Geigel. He loved everyone here. Um, but, you know, obviously this is, like you said, this is a lower-rung territory back in the day that would propel you to another place. But I'm sure, like a lot of old veterans now would say, I wish there were some Kansas Cities around today so people could get some work. And, yeah. And even though the Kansas Cities of the world would be great at this point. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, look, even... Even the worst territory that I've been to, and at one time Memphis was the worst territory I thought going, yeah. and uh, I always enjoyed the the towns and things like that. But the the attitude, the aura, the vibe when you walked in someplace, it it it, it I I truly believe it matters and with the attitude that that you bring with it mm-hmm. and the attitude you receive all meshes together in in how you go out and perform and i think kansas city um didn't didn't convey or didn't care if the guys were uh as professional or looking professional or and i could be wrong because i've never been there but this is just my speculation it's got a definite blue collar appeal to it yeah it's not it's not flashy it's not right right and so when the world champion come in and you see all the blue collar guys, you go, wow, because right across the bridge there in St. Louis, you're sure. going, huh? Okay. Yeah. So. I, you know, I never really got to talk to Harley about the dichotomy between his hometown area, which was, he was born in little North Kansas city, Kansas city versus St. Louis. I mean, I never talked to him about that, that compare and contrast, but I mean, it would be very weird for him being a part owner here over here in Kansas city with heart of America promotions and then going over and just, you know, just printing money in St. Louis. Um, right. He probably saw it just as the, I would assume the, the stepbrother of, of St. Louis. And he just, you know, knew what it was and helped us, you know, had some investment in it. So he wanted it to do well, but yeah, the, uh, he had the pick of the litter over there in St. Louis. It was just different. Yeah, it was different. And I think that's what made him, uh, so appealing, um, to guys like, a. uh, Gaggle and, and O'Connor, who were who were close enough still sure. to to the action, 
uh, where they could be involved if they wanted to be and have their town at the same time. Well, you went on to obviously be, I, I still consider you the, the greatest trainer of all time with WWE. I, I still always think that you should, uh, you should have been there for 50 years. Uh, everyone respected and loved you there. And, you know, I've told you that a million times. And I know that uh, that and a quarter will get you a cup of coffee. I get it. But. No, no, no. Corey, no. It's more than a quarter. Okay. I mean, $10 yeah. will get you a cup yeah. of coffee. But. There you go. Thank uh, you. Can you give me. Uh, you, when I, I say this, and I know because you went to WWE in your years there, you did get to come through Kansas City a lot when you were just doing house shows or, or just pay-per-views or whatever, and you would uh, see Harley, uh, either as a worker or as a trainer. I know you, you did both with WWE, but you would go to Harley, and I've always heard all these uh, magnificent stories of his uh, chili cook-offs and uh, the nights that were spent at Harley's house when he came to Kansas City. Do you have any like great memories of hanging out with Harley here in KC? Well, I, uh, I hung out with Harley uh, and Les Thatcher in, at Harley's house. Uh, we you did, did a, a camp, right? You were doing we a did camp? a camp. Yeah, we did a um, uh, three- or four-day camp. I'm not sure. It might have been a week. Hell, I don't, I don't remember how long. It was a couple days because we went out on the boat. Uh, and uh, I, I believe – no, we went out to dinner. Um, she just, uh, she didn't make dinner. Um, BJ, you're talking about his wife. BJ, yeah, I was going to say BJ didn't make dinner. We went out to dinner each night, but we also went on the boat. And we had lunch, and we <laughs> we had we had we I had good times because I watched Harley in El Paso growing up. I was going to say and, he had to been a you had to been a hero to you growing up. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, asked him these these famous stories that I heard throughout the the business and uh, dropping the belt to. Uh, to uh, Briscoe and, and uh, beating Dory for the belt in Kansas City and asking him these, these questions. Um, a famous match in, in Odessa with the lawman or uh, it was either Odessa. It was one of those West Lubbock, something like that. Okay. And, uh, lawman double-crossed him in a chain match, and he went back to the back, and he told me I brought him back from the locker room and pulled him around touched all four corners all these classic veteran old-time stories that um uh, that are missing today because there's no veterans out there who have those kind of stories <laughs> from the past 30 years the no, business has right. changed oh. the world's changed oh yeah no i know i miss those too i mean that's the being a kid growing up and, and hearing all that stuff and you know obviously the territories with, with the harleys and stuff that that ended you know, uh, you're still the remnants of the people from the territory years ended. What twenty years ago, probably. I mean, you still had. Some... Oh, longer than that, thirty years ago, man. Like in '85, it, it was pretty much done. And it just—I mean, some people had barely started at that point. They were still around. From you know, uh, you're talking the Stone Colds, the Undertaker, stuff like that. They got—they got some of that, obviously. But uh... well, yeah, those guys, Austin and Taker, and guys of that era, they—they they did grow up. Uh, Washington Territories and guys like uh, Harley and and the Funks and uh, things like that. Sure, sure. I, I just it's just interesting to uh, to look at how different it is when you tell these stories about Harley. Um, but Harley uh, obviously is revered here in Kansas City to wrestling fans, and it was a very sad day when he passed away a couple of years ago. But um, he was. Is he, the, is he the toughest man in wrestling ever, or is that Haku? I mean, you guys, you guys have to debate this, right? Well, 
I, there's always going to be a debate, I think, because uh, I've, I've even heard stories about Terry Taylor biting guy's nose, nose <laughs> off on a bar in Louisiana. So, you know, you got to be pretty tough to do that. Sure, so, sure. Uh, but, but I, I've, I've heard the stories about Harley. I've never seen Harley. I've seen, I've seen Matt Bourne knock people out in a bar. I've seen Manny <laughs> Fernandez in a fight in a bar and punch a guy, the guy, uh, uh, I think he was knocked out, but he, he got he got pulled out of the bar shortly after that. Yeah, there, there, Hartley was definitely probably everybody back then had to be uh, a level of tough, sure, or else you couldn't get in the business. And and Harley went through it all too. He he paid his dues to get in. Uh, yes, he got also pricked with hat pins left and right, um, and he would tell stories about that when these little old ladies were doing that. Were you ever around a situation where you would have little old ladies hitting you with some kind of sharp object? No, no. I had one guy in Birmingham, though, hit me on the side of my head with his cane when I was outside oh. the ring uh, kicking Brad Armstrong. <laughs> yeah, he hit me. He, he laid into me on the side oh, of my God. head, and I thought, what the hell? And the, he was an old man. And <laughs> what can you do back? I didn't. I didn't do anything back because cops came and got him, and I wanted to leave it alone. The next week, uh, we wrestled on Monday, and, and Ronnie West called me up and asked me if I wanted to press charges, and I said no. And he said, well, the cops want to scare him because he's being real indignant and arrogant with them. So they wanted me to go down to the court. And uh, act like I was going to press charges and then say, no, it's okay, Your Honor. Just keep him away from me. And if he ever does it, does it again, we will. And that's what I did. Nothing ever happened of it. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, I've been, yeah, but I've been, I've been uh, kicked and punched as, uh, as I'm walking back with Cornette especially. That was, <laughs> sure, sure. You know, that was a different environment. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> yeah. No, I, I, uh, it's, it's always funny. Uh, Harley does it with the, when he would tell those stories, he'd do it with a, a gleam in his eye. Cause even though I'm sure he was furious when it happened, it was still sort of like a badge of honor <laughs> that it would get yeah. that much heat back in the day. Yeah, it was great, man. I, if, if, if people believe that much and I'm not, uh, so sure it was the believable as just as much as I hated the arrogant little prick, uh, walking back and I'll show you, you son of a, <laughs> so. Well, I, I, uh, staying with Kansas city history, I did want to talk to you about this before I let you go. You were obviously around Owen Hart a lot and he's always going to be synonymous with Kansas city based on the horrific tragedy that happened in, uh, in May of 1999 here at Kemper arena. I was at that show. It was actually the very first, uh, it, I was about to leave to go move to Darien, Connecticut, like the next week, but I was still here with my parents and I, um, went with some friends, sat front row, like right behind, uh, J.R. and King, right by, you know, right by the announcer. So I was looking straight at the Titan Tron. And when that happened and Owen had his accident, it was, uh, you know, obviously it's going to be talked about forever because it was just a, he, the combination of what happened and the kind of guy that Owen Hart was and how everybody loved the guy. Um, it seemed, you know, it's just always going to be talked about. Um, you were, you were there that night, right? Or no? Yeah. Okay. Uh, what, uh, I mean, that, that has to be, um, uh, the the worst thing you've ever seen and just one of the thing the worst things that you'll never get out of your mind ever right i mean i i remember that night so vividly yeah yeah well I, the package with uh kevin kelly talking to Owen was was on as that happened yes. so it wasn't yeah it wasn't 
live on camera, but uh, uh, we were watching backstage, and then when it came back out to the wide shot, the lights were down, uh, and we heard JR say something, and then um, I was in the back, I think, talking talking with uh, Dennis Knight, mm-hmm. and JR said something that Owen Hart has been hurt, seriously hurt, and we looked at each other, and both of us went to Gorilla. Uh, I walked out uh, to the ring because Francois, do you remember Francois? Oh, yeah. yeah the, uh, okay. He wasn't really a doctor. He was like no. a backcracker or something. I don't know what he was. Well, he came running out uh, as well, and he was in the ring. I went out, too, and looked, and I saw Lawler on the way back. And uh, I said, hey, is he okay? And Lawler looked at me and says, I think he's dead. Yeah. And I went, oh, no, my heart sunk. It was a horrible night. Um, there was nothing else. There was nothing anyone could do. And I, I do remember, uh, when, when the matches continued, uh, I think there was, there was a stunned feeling the buzz of uncomfortable uncertainty was, was everywhere that night. Well, and, it was definitely, uh, that's your perspective backstage. Because yes. you know what's actually going on. Obviously, yeah. what people are happening. In, I'm I'm in the crowd, and I I tell the story because I, I saw it. it. It just happened to be that I was looking up at the Titantron, and I saw him fall. So when I see, yeah. so what he did in my memory is he came, and it was a miracle that he didn't fall into the crowd. I mean, there's a lot of things that could have happened way worse, <laughs> but he, yeah, he ended up hitting his. It looked like he hit his elbow on a corner post and then he hit the ropes and sort of it sort of propelled him back in on his back in the ring which made it look uh i don't know oh, oh some people i could understand why some people thought it was part of the act staged whatever mm. because it was the way it just sort of went down and i saw him do a couple of crunches and it looked like his elbow had been completely like the skin around his well, almost to the bone at that point but it wasn't bleeding because it was still in shock of it just happening and he did mm. a couple crunches lawler was in immediately and it just it was horrible but a lot of people thought it was a mannequin a lot of people thought it was fake and so he goes to the back and of course, it's been debated ever since then, Tom. Like, should they have gone on or whatever? Outside, no one really knows. You know, like ninety percent of the people just think it's part of the show. Have you looked at it and said, like, I mean, you know, I hate it when people just give Vince all kinds of trouble for this because I'm like, you, it's a unprecedented. I think you keep going. You don't know what to do, so you go. You know. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That that is something everybody's talked about. But what else? could he have done okay you stop the show everybody goes home now what now you're dealing with it do you keep it going um uh is it going to be you're not going to win any way you do this there you're not and vince had vince was in charge of making the hard decisions it was his company and i'm sure that wasn't diff wasn't easy for him to do to make that decision um what do you do? What you don't know until you're in that position. You don't know until you're in that spot. Of course. And nobody wants, of course. And I hope we're never in that spot again. So I think Vince did what he felt was right, and in, and you have to you have to either get on that boat and sail with it or not. And we did that night, and that's what you had to do. Some people were upset about it. Everybody was upset about it. Sure. I mean. 
it's just uh, being being in control of something like that. Uh, you know, just I, I don't. You know, if if you own a business of any sort and something like that happens, uh, it's hard to compare apples to oranges because it's uh, live TV, live pay per view, and you don't know what you're. You don't know. There's so many other balls in the air at that point that people will never yeah. understand. But um, yeah, you know, it's it's been debated forever, and of course, Monday morning quarterbacking on it has always been uh, unfair to the real incident, but. Um, I don't know. I just, I just didn't know your take on that. It was a, I, it's one, you know, I, I don't have the greatest memory in the world of everything that's happened in my life, but that night definitely severely stands out. Yeah. And I think it stood out to everybody who was there. It, it really was, uh, uh, surreal and tragic and there's no, there's no way to, there's no way to to know what to do. There's no guidebook when things like that happen. You have to uh, go with instinct, and you have to go with what you feel is 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 the only thing to do. But if you if you stop the show, everybody mills around and goes home. Mm-hmm. What what's what's the upside? And what's the upside of running the show? People are going to hate you because you. You run the show, so you're not you're not going to win no matter what you do. Did you come back to Kansas City? Did you go back to Kemp Arena after that ever? You? I don't. I I I might have. I don't recall. Yeah. I mean, I really don't recall. I remember uh, it was WCW. I think after that happened, I believe they were the ones that came first, and they had. I bet. I believe that was the Bret Hart, like Chris Benoit. They had a match together, just sort of you know, in memory of Owen. And do you remember that? I do. Yeah, I just. Yeah. It was, it's just uh, it, it, Kemp Arena. For those that aren't in Kansas City now, it, it has now been sort of uh, revamped. It's now used as like a high school. Uh, they have high school basketball tournaments and a lot of things there. It's been completely sort of redone construction wise. But uh, it was interesting because the people here, Tom, st- there were still workers here that would claim they would see like the ghost up in the rafters. And, you know, I don't believe in that stuff really, but it, right. is, it has become local lore here because of just the insane tragedy of it all. But uh, unfortunately, it's something that's always tied to here. Yeah, it will be, and and that's that's a, a legacy that that goes with Kansas City for uh, for whatever reason. Man, people are going to always talk and 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 have their own views and stories, and it'll be passed down. I hope it's passed down through the years because Owen's memory should always be uh, uh, passed down and 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 a lesson of not only uh, a great worker and how to work, but, but how to have fun backstage and how to yeah. enjoy life when you're on the road. Cause that that's, that's part of this business uh, that can eat you alive being on the road or not knowing how to maneuver it um, and handle it and doing, having fun and having doing ribs and pulling ribs on people was, was someone's specialty. Was you made say, it fun on the road, man. Uh, when I was yeah. just a kid, but I mean, hearing all the stories, did he ever do anything to you? Or do you have a favorite rib? The, the, the only thing Owen did to me and he did it to a few other people too, was, uh, in the morning when I was getting ready to leave my room, he called my room and acted like he was the manager and I was, and he was pissed. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I needed to come up here and I need to check out right now. And I said, I'll be out in about 30 minutes. No, you got to check out right now. We're going to come down and throw your ass out. So, so how could he mask the Canadian accent? I was wondering how could he, how could he get away well, with this fake voice? He, 
he could do that. He was a very low key sometimes on the voice uh, on the on the phone with with his voice like that. I do remember when he called, and it didn't sound like Owen. But then as soon as he started with that crap, then it was I, I knew that was Owen. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. He used to like get people everybody doing the Stu Hart impression. It sounded like, and I, it's, he had some great moment, moments of that of just screwing people over, thinking it was too hard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and why not? You know, he was having fun, uh, and he felt everybody else should have fun too. Don't take life so serious. It's funny. Well, Tom, thanks for joining me today. I do want to talk about what you're doing now. You're like I said, uh, you will always be the trainer of stars to me, and uh, you're doing that now in your in your home state. Well, yeah. Uh, Glenn Jacobs, a.k.a. Kane, who's also from Missouri, by the way. He is. St. Louis uh, used to be a substitute teacher over there. Yeah. Right, right. He uh, he uh, was running for mayor, Knox County mayor here, and uh, actually won. He just won another term. Okay. And uh, four years ago, uh, talked about doing a school. So we opened a school here in Knoxville, the Jake the Jacobs Pritchard Wrestling Academy, JPWA. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are just finishing up our fourth year. And anybody who wants information and, uh, about how to train or get a T-shirt or my curriculum can go to jpwrestlingacademy.com, find out all the information. It's kind of cool. We've had people from India, England, Switzerland, Awesome. Uh, Germany, uh, come over and train with us. We do four sessions a year. We do three 12 week sessions cool. and one 10 week session. So, uh, some of our guys have got hired Ivy Nile, Lauren Channing, um, are on NXT right now. And, uh, some of the guys go to, have gone to AEW and doing independent works. Some guys want to Go to the big time. Some guys want to stay around home and work independence. Either way you want to do it, come on in and learn the basics and fundamentals because the basics and fundamentals never go out of style. No. Uh, real quick, real quick, I know we've got, got to go, but uh, somebody was telling me last night about Roman Reigns and um, uh, is it Jake Paul? Logan or, Paul. Logan, Logan Paul. Paul. Excuse me, excuse me. Yeah, Logan Paul. Uh, he said their match uh, at the Crown Jewel over the weekend was a basic match with the basic man in the middle drills we did. You know, yes, they added some sizzle along with that steak, but that's what I explained. The basics and fundamentals with a guy who's still green, although Logan Paul is a talented guy and an athlete, he's still learning. And if you stick with the basics, it's not about the moves. It's about what you do in between the moves and the persona and the facials and body language and the, the story you're telling. So that's what we teach. That's what we do. And, uh, we stress, uh, promos and communicating and, uh, it's, it's a real simple deal to, to understand. It's just not always easy. You used to talk about even 25 years ago. You were telling people to slow down because everybody wants to go fast, right? So constant. Uh, so I mean, it, it's it's got to drive you nuts to watch a, a, a well a, a match nowadays, right? Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, uh, Paul Bosch used to say, "I like fish. I, I I like strawberries, and I like to go fishing. But when I go fishing, I put worms on the hook because I'm trying to catch fish. In other words, you don't give." Uh, somebody, you don't, if you're trying to get wrestling fans in the arena, you give them what they want, yeah, not what sure. you like necessarily. It, it's what the wrestling fans want. And if that's what the fans of today want, by God, 
you'd be stupid not to give it to them. The only problem I see with it, I won't go on a rant, I promise, but you could get so much more, in my opinion, by telling a simple story and get it over with the personas and the characters, if you will, and the people that, that are interesting and peculiar and different than the average bear, than going out there and doing a lot of rehearsed choreographed spots. You do need spots. You do need sizzle. You do need some great stuff and cool looking stuff. But when it just you're just doing it for the for the moves or for the spots and there's no emotion or feeling into it, there's a difference. There's where the difference between having a guy like Stone Cold with black trunks, black boots, black vest, bald head, goatee, whatever you wanna wanna say, by all rights, shouldn't be over. Never did a moonsault in his life. Never did a have a corona or a toupee or a huracorona and a toupee. Never did either one of those, but he was one of the most over guys in the business. Why? It was because his persona, it was because his believability, his authenticity. So he didn't like coronas. He liked Coors Light anyway. Um, I know he did. He's a good man. He, uh, Look, I, I'm not going to go on a rant either, but I do think you isn't there isn't there something about retraining people though? Even though you say that you give them what they want, and I totally understand that, but there is a you know there's always there's always an audience for something, Tom. I'm sure I've always made the thing that somebody can have a guy out here, you know, um, having uh, intercourse with a dog. I'm sure some people yes. buy a ticket to that, so it's not necessarily us, you know, you know. It, well, it, it is, but you have to have compelling. Uh, person person now compelling people on your tv why would we want to watch i haven't binge watched anything but i watched um the boys on amazon okay. have you heard about this oh okay. yeah i've heard about that okay sure. have you seen it i have not it is great storytelling and and it 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 leads you into the next uh, episode where I couldn't go to bed. I was, and finally, uh, I binge watched this on a weekend, and it was three thirty in the morning when I said, "Oh my God, I gotta, I've gotta lay down," but I couldn't stop watching these guys. That's sure. what wrestling used to be, where you had the episodic uh, stories weekly. Now it's different, so the models change. The model doesn't exist anymore. You got to adapt, and you got to give people what they want. And yes, there are. Yes, you can re-educate them, and yes, I think it goes full circle, and yes, I think once you get to the end of the line, now you bring back what's old and make it new again, but you got to do it with people who putting who are putting emotion and feeling into it, and that's what Roman Reigns, Logan Paul did in, in Saudi, uh, at least I, I didn't see the match, this is what the guys told me, I saw bits and pieces of it, but doing the moves the way they did it, it's not because they did the moves, it's because of the two guys who did it, and they put the feeling in it, and that's what's... Uh, the key ingredient, in my opinion. I'm guessing you don't teach in your beginner class the buckshot lariat. Uh, because no, seemed, not quite. That seemed to be what uh, <laughs> possibly tore up Logan Paul's knee. He's got a like a torn meniscus and MCL supposedly, and he did a buckshot lariat in the match. So, um, and that's obviously took out Punk earlier this year. There's a couple things that I've right. heard some people. <laughs> that's that is a dangerous move, even though it looks really cool. But uh, yeah, well, and and the way to the way to make that dangerous move safe is to practice and practice and practice don't do it until you get it right do it until you can't get it wrong sure and you used to do that every day up in the uh up in the warehouse in kansas city and uh or sorry up in the darien connecticut stanford connecticut at the headquarters and um it was uh, awesome meeting you there tom and i appreciate you doing this for me years later and still glad to call you a friend buddy 
outstanding. Anytime you want to talk about Kansas City, just let me know. It's the worst territory. All right, welcome back to the worst territory in the world. And that was the interview with Dr. Tom Pritchard. Chris, how was it to reminisce with Dr. Tom? And and do you ever catch yourself in these weird moments of like, I know Dr. Tom Pritchard? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did for a long time. Like I have a great photograph when um when I my first summer at WWE 97, uh, my parents sent up uh like I was like 10 pounds of of brisket and burn ends from Kansas City barbecue it was dry iced and sent up to Stanford, Connecticut, and we had it in the mailroom at the TV studio. And I have this great picture of uh, Cornette with like a burn end on a fork, sticking it up in the air, like posing like you would with your fist in a wrestler's pose, and Doctor Tom doing the fist. We were all eating in the mailroom, and I have just the three of us are in this picture, and it's a great picture That's that awesome. I love. Uh, but um, you know, Doctor Tom has been a a good friend for uh, i mean two and a half decades now and it is cool to know him it's cool to he's a like a unbelievably witty smart funny guy and um i've always been like so like uh sort of quietly secretly angry all the time that he doesn't still work as the trainer at wwe or at least you know the guy should have his own office at the performance center he's just he's just a guy that he he just was he was the in the middle of the biggest era ever of wrestling yeah. and he trained most of them and somehow he got on the wrong side of I know all about getting on the wrong side of uh, a McMahon but he got on the wrong side somewhere and he he is not back there but like he talked about he's he's got his training facility now with uh, Glenn Jacobs and him in Knoxville and they're they're pumping out people that are going to AEW and WWE NXT now so um, he's a great guy and you heard it there. He's a fun, nice, great dude, and uh, he has been around. He's one of the guys, Gabe, that I said, when Hogan or Flair write a book, it's sort of like, whatever. The the perspective from the top being the top guy is sometimes sort of boring, (laughs) but it's a perspective of a guy like Dr. Tom who could really write a book because he was there for everything in the shadows but is smart enough and witty (laughs) enough to write a fantastic book about everything going on. But as in true hardcore kayfabe fashion, I don't think he'd ever do that. (laughs) <laughs> I, I you know to be honest sometimes i find myself when i'm backstage or working a show or you know even obviously way more in the nwl because i was meeting these guys that i was like holy shit like <laughs> yeah you famously you know told me to come over and say hello to tommy dreamer because you knew what a hardcore mark i was uh for tommy dreamer You're like hey hey come here weren't you a hardcore mark for this guy i'm like son of a just come bury on. you in front of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, that. come on, man. Give me it. And I tried to play it off really good, but then I was like, yeah, hello, Mr. Dreamer. But <laughs> I still find, I still find myself doing the, or having those types of moments, even now, you know, like, um, you know, uh, working at CSW and, and running that national guard armory, I was like, oh my God, like I am in a building where Harley race rests, you know, that history just of the building alone. It's not that I met Harley race or anything, but I was like, man, this is, this is crazy. I can't believe I'm, I'm privileged enough to um, be a part of it. So without further ado, Chris, we're going to wrap up this episode of the worst territory in the world, but in true worst territory in the world fashion, you get to choose your own adventure for the final (laughs) segment. And this week's choices are Hogan's history. You could do the hot seat again, if you want, or we could do Mount Rushmore. Okay, let's do uh, Mount Rushmore this week, Gabe. Okay. 
All right. So this week's Mount Rushmore, as you know, a big topic of conversation whenever we get together is always who is the Mount Rushmore? Who is the greatest so-and-so of all time? Of so in true Mount Rushmore fashion, I'm going to ask you who you think is now this is a, there's a caveat here. Who is the Mount Rushmore of underrated managers? Oh, um, all time, huh? All time. Uh, a guy that talk... you were, the color outside the lines a little bit. You know, we know the Cornets. <laughs> sure, Bobby <laughs> Heenan, Cornet, right? Of course. Yeah, think, th- but think about the 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 unsung heroes, and let's even swerve it a little bit more. Maybe folk. Everyone was a territory worker, but maybe put some territory spin on it. I've got a few guys in my head that I can throw on the list if you do, if you don't have them. But yes, most underrated manager. Uh, Mount Rushmore. Well, I mean, if you're talking, well, let's stick stick with Kansas City. Okay. Uh, I don't think this guy actually. I mean, everyone remembers him. I don't think he actually. Uh, he he wasn't a necessarily a witty guy like Cornette or Heenan. I think everybody likes Cornette and Heenan for many reasons, but they were just so quick and so funny right. that it made them uh, awesome. But uh, the Reverend Slick. Is a guy from Kansas City who uh, (laughs) I've always heard he's Rufus. uh, He's Rufus's son. Uh, I don't. They they claim that though. He's Rufus's. um, uh, I know that obviously I know the family history, but he is actually Rufus's stepson. I believe stepson. Okay. Well, I either way, I had no idea they were even uh, related by marriage, but. Uh, but he was a guy who, I mean, look, growing up, I had his LJN figure, yeah. uh, Jive Soul Bro. Akeem is, I, Akeem was one of my awesome, like, I love Akeem, the African dream, which would not fly today, no. but I love, I love, no. Akeem is one of the best, uh, you know, guilty pleasure wrestlers in the history of my life. And um, anyway, so I loved him in, in uh, WWF, but you know, he didn't really necessarily do a lot. He was a funny guy. Uh, he, he spoke his Jive Soul Bro talk to everybody uh, when he was cutting promos. But he's a guy that I think's uh, underrated. Um, you know, I wasn't necessarily a Mr. Fuji guy. He didn't mm. really do a ton. He was okay. a huge, uh, you know, he was a great worker in his day. Right. Uh, he's I think he's forgotten because obviously he he didn't talk a lot, but he's underrated from the standpoint of he was involved in some major angles with some huge tag teams huge. back in the day. And also they brought him back to be part of a Yokozuna at the beginning before Cornette got involved as well as his whatever North American translator, whatever they wanted to call him. Uh, but he uh, he was involved in a ton, and of course, who can ever like not put a guy on the list that like chopped up a guy's dog and fed it to him? Like then that's what they did the Al Snow angle with a uh, big boss man with Pepper. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, no, you know those are two guys that jump out. Um, you know, I I used to love uh, all the sort of mid card. Uh, mid card managers like the captain lose and the um the you know even oliver humperdinck i was like why is that why does the good guy bam bam bigelow have a manager didn't make any sense in like 1987 wwf that a like mid to high card baby face would have a manager like oliver humperdinck um uh, you know i thought it was you you mentioned him earlier colonel robert parker was as oh, yeah. his, as his, uh, the 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 Kentucky Fried Chicken guy. I mean, Tennessee Lee, dude, yeah. so good, so yeah. good. <laughs> uh, 
But, uh, you know, I have to think, you know, I, I could think about this all day. I mean, from from guys that were from people that were brought in as a joke, like a Sapphire, who I thought was, uh, you know, hilarious. Like, was Vince really trying to bury Dusty with Sapphire? I don't know. She was from St. Louis and I had heard about her before. Uh, people, you know, she she had a history in the sort Juanita. of Central States area. Juanita. Yes. yes. Juanita Wright, I believe. Yep. Um, but uh, but yeah, there was. So who's on some of your list that I'm not mentioning? So, uh, um. I would have to say that my biggest, my biggest uh, person Underrated. on that list is is Gary Hart. Okay, I thought Gary Hart was such a good orator. Really worked the territory systems through and through. Loved him with the Great Muda and Terry Funk. Um, I heard his wrestling book is one of the most sought after. One it of is. The- one it's of like the, hundreds of dollars. Yeah. One of the best wrestling uh, books, apparently, that's been written was by Gary Hart. So um, and the mystique around Gary Hart. I mean, he really had been there, done it all, spoke softly, didn't really bump a lot, apparently didn't like to be touched <laughs> by the wrestlers. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, a lot of people didn't. Just a really fascinating guy. But I think uh, uh, Gary Hart is somebody that's pretty high up on the list for me. Um, like you said, like a uh, uh, Freddie Blassie, those guys that uh, Harley race when he was doing the the managing of Lex, he put spice on Lex Luger, and that was hard to do. Yes, no, that that's right. Harley race was a, I, I loved him transitioning and using his star power to go up the line. But I just thought of another one that I thought was great. Which Sensational one? Sherry. Okay, Sherry Martell. Yes, was uh, yes. she was so when I grew up, Sherry Martell obviously had uh, she was a wrestler back. You know, obviously when I was real young, she was wrestling and uh, would take on Rock and Robin on a WrestleMania at one point. But then, uh, and she was she was like a a pretty gal. You know, like she mm-hmm. was for the time. Definitely when you were like looking at Moolah and, and you know the May Youngs of the world, she was a pretty gal. But um, she when she went to join Macho King. Uh, that oh. was some great stuff. And then he, she went to Shawn Michaels and then well, I'm not great. even talking about when she went to Harlem heat and all those other things. But like, if you talk to anybody since I never got to meet her, but sensational Sherry was uh unbelievable talent. All she could cut a great promo. And when she was in that, when she was known as scary Sherry that Brutus oh. and Barbara called her, uh, when so it, when good. she was with Zeus and macho man against the, and they had the, you know, the no hold barred, uh, the match, the movie, all that stuff. Uh, right. that was, um, she had some great promos with Macho Man. She was oh, a great person with Macho Man. Fantastic. Yo, I couldn't agree more. I think that's I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. I think that that if if there's a larger head on Mount Rushmore of the underrated managers, it has to be sensational, Sherry. Because if you go back and watch those promos with Macho King, oh my God. <laughs> they were great. Phenomenal. And I will say, if you watch, you know, we were speaking of Harley Race when he was managing Vader. Um, go back and watch that White Castle of Fear match, which, by the way, is the greatest strap match ever. <laughs> there is, there's not even a close second in strap okay. match history. Um, Harley Race's involvement in there is very key and very pivotal. And if you didn't know what you were looking for, you'd miss it. And if so, I, I'm not. I, I don't want to give too much away. I want people to go back and watch this match. Harley Race's involvement in there is the key critical. Uh, 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 component to that match and if you, you when you see it you'll understand why but i i think i thought his run was was really really great but i think sure i think those are some solid picks i i really i really like the slick and the mr fuji was involved in some high high profile matches i think those were excellent another, 
another guy before we go here another guy yeah. that held together a lot of storylines didn't really do a ton but uh started a lot of stuff in the, in the 90s was uh paul bear i mean this yes. is a he was percy a guy pringle. that connect he connected it yeah P- percy pringle you know triple p he was the guy that um you know, he did a lot of stuff, obviously, before he came to WWE. But oh, when yeah. he came, uh, and Br- I've heard Bruce tell the story of Bruce uh, Pritchard tell the story about him coming up and had, trying to get into WWF for the longest time. And he finally comes in and takes over for Bruce Pritchard as, uh, you know, the guy with The Undertaker. And, you know, but think about what he did. He was a taker forever. So to be to not get overshadowed by takers hard enough. Uh, he looked, uh, you know, he just looked so cool, made up the way he was. But then you go to transition to Kane and man, <laughs> all the stuff with Kane. Oh, I mean, if you gosh. if you hate that kind of wrestling, I understand this is all like, no, total it's, make that, was, that was great. Yeah. And that but then he then he starts with mankind, then he has yeah. Vader. I mean, he had a lot of different stuff through the years. And <laughs> then he dies by getting thrown in concrete. So uh, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, that was incredible, though. Think about that. They gave him an exit and yeah. a fantastic one at that. So that shows what he meant to that company, I think, at that time, is they gave him a pretty fantastic exit. Now, it was a different era back then. But, yeah, Percy Pringle, that's a really, really, really good call as well. Uh, man, that, yeah, that was a lot. This makes fun. me miss the rest of the, this makes me miss managers. They just don't really yes, exist anymore. And if don't. they do, they're not, they're so marginalized that they don't really mean anything. So I get it. An honorable mention, although not a lot of people got to see his work. I think Larry Sweeney, um, had mm-hmm. all the potential in the world, not only as a worker, but as a manager, he was doing stuff with the Kings of wrestling on the Indies. Right. People like him. Yeah. Really great talker. Um, I, uh, 12 large was, was an awesome, that's what they call him. 12 large was a great manager. And I think, uh, had a lot of potential ahead of him. So that'll do it this week for the worst territory in the world. Goff, you have any parting, uh, parting words of wisdom for our fans out there? No, I think, uh, coming up here soon, speaking to Tommy dreamer, I'll be talking with him, but I'm also going to talk with Billy Howard, Akio Sato and some others coming up, uh, just a little bit more Kansas city related stuff coming up, but, uh, you know, Kansas city, having Kansas city ties doesn't necessarily mean they have to be wrestling here because let's face it, not a lot of them are still alive. So we're going to have to be a little creative with people who had, uh, some cups of coffee here, have some more, uh, you know, longer history with some of the guys that worked here, but looking forward to keep talking to people and get their thoughts on the central States or the worst territory in the world. Now, you know, once we pick up more momentum and more steam, people are going to ask. So let's just address it right now. We didn't talk about this, but it just came to my mind. Are we going to address the NWL in depth? Oh, I I would love to talk about the NWL. I don't know. uh, Like, NWL was very regional, so I don't know how many people uh, that listen to this would actually care. But uh, the National Wrestling League was a, a huge thing in my life. And it was a really cool part of uh, people's lives that were that enjoyed it. I mean, yes, yours too. But uh, some people disliked (laughs) it, uh, and I could name them on one hand. But uh, otherwise, most people enjoyed it. And yes, I would love to do that. And let's have we should have that. We should have uh, a lot of the people involved in it. Of course, Strider was, but Matt Jackson and. And other people, so uh, we we will. I, that would take multiple episodes. Yeah, I was about to say that's going to be a multiple episode one. But I know once this picks up steam and more fans get a, a, a word, you know, maybe we should sponsor the next CSW event. Get the word out. I'm just kidding. If we can get to like, I would say on YouTube or something, we should set a subscriber count. If we can get to a certain amount of subscribers, I say we we automatically do that episode. But 
you know, as the podcast grows, you guys don't forget to uh, subscribe to us on wherever you're hearing us on whatever platform you have us on. Don't forget to go over to our YouTube channel, um, like and subscribe there as well. It really helps us get noticed um, out there in the grandiose world of wrestling podcasts. Um, you know, just any way you can support us, tell a friend, you know, tell, tell somebody about us, tell us, tell them you like what we're doing, especially if they live in the Kansas city area or, or outside. I know we have, you know, my brother listens in Tulsa and things like that. This is a wrestling podcast for everybody. And it's, you know, all meant to have fun and give you, give you a little bit of a different perspective other than your typical, hi, we're two buds sitting around shooting the stuff about the current day product. You know, this is something a little bit different. So we hope you enjoy what we're doing and uh, give us all the love and support that you can. Um, that's about it for us this week. Uh, we will see you right here next week unless Goff runs off to New Orleans again. Um, <laughs> I'm Gabe Miller. That is Chris Goff. And we will see you next time right here on the worst territory in the world. It's the worst territory.